All right, if you have your Bible, look in uh, Revelation chapter 21. Ron sang about heaven, and we finally come to the place where we're going to look at the new heaven, the new earth. So we've gone through the book of Revelation. We have seen that chronologically, historically, chronologically, we've seen the church age. Uh, At the end of the church age, that's chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 4, you look into the throne room of heaven. Uh, Chapter 4 and 5, chapter 6 on through 19, we've looked at the tribulation. And uh, the tribulation, the judgments that come upon the earth to um, show the earth that Christ is the King of kings, Lord of lords, and that he came to rule and was rejected, and now he is going to take rule. And so then we come to chapter 19, have the end of that, the great white throne judgment. And so now we're at the end of time, and, and now in verse, that was in chapter 20, and then in verse 21, we're looking into what we call eternity. And uh, there's some <clears throat> people, commentators, say even the word eternity has a time factor. But um, when we come to this place and there's a new heaven, new earth, there is no time factor. God is not inside of time. God is outside of time. And he created time as well as created the universes, uh, the world, the, the heaven. And, and so he's outside of time. And when we dwell in his presence, we're going to be outside of time. You know, we sing the song that 10,000 years, you know, it'd be like, a, you know, we just begun. And, but there is no 10,000 years. There's just time. I mean, there is no time. Now, I don't know about you. See, we don't think that way. We think specially at every minute follows another minute, and that's how we think. That's how we live, and so we don't think this way. <clears throat> John Moffat said this. John said, from the smoke and pain and heat of the tribulation, it is a relief to pass into the clear, clean atmosphere of the eternal morning where the breath of heaven is sweet and the vast city of God sparkles like a diamond in the radiance of his presence. So read with me chapter 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. When you come to the end of the tribulation and you come to the millennial kingdom, the sin curse is lifted off the earth for the most part. Satan is bound for a thousand years. His minions are rendered uh, <clears throat> not, not as, as they're, they're rendered impotent for a thousand years. And so the, the earth brings forth and it's plentifully and uh, the deserts bloom and all these things in the thousand year millennial reign. So it's like the earth is remade in, in that <clears throat> thousand year millennial reign, but, but it is not new. And so when you come to the end of the, of the millennial kingdom and the great white throne judgment, and then when you come to here, there is a new heaven and a new earth, completely new heaven, completely new earth. This is what Peter said. Peter said, we are looking for the day when the heavens will be dissolved and the elements, that's the world, that's the physical world, the elements will melt with fervent heat while we those who are saved, 
look for new heavens and a new earth. Second Peter chapter 3, 12 through 13. So we talk about a new heaven and a new earth. It's not talking about the heaven where God dwells, but it's talking about the, the heavens above the earth. Uh, some people put it in stages of heaven. There is the atmosphere where the birds fly, then there's above that. And if you've been watching the shuttles that have gone up into space, the rich guys who are sending them up, and there's been some discussion about how many miles you go up before you're actually in space. And I, I can't remember the discussion, but some it's like 55 and some it's like 60 or 61 or something. And so there's a little controversy about whether the first one actually went into space or he only went 55 miles and the other one went 61 miles. <laughs> so, <clears throat> but uh, those things will be destroyed and made new without the, without the curse um, when we read in verse 1, there's no more sea. When in the first century, the seas were seen as unconquerable and dangerous. And uh, there are people who sailed upon the seas, but they were, they were very dangerous. A lot of people lost their lives in the sea. They couldn't, they couldn't fathom what we know today about being able to tra- traverse and sail and have a measure of safety. And so when they're saying no more sea, and then if you, if you think back, the seas came about after the flood. When you're looking at, when you look at Genesis, there, there, there weren't seas before the flood. The deeps had not opened up. And, and then as you're reading in Psalms, what happens after the earth is covered with the waters, the mountains rise up, valleys come down, and you're left with seas that separate um, the continents. And so I don't know much about geology, and so I'll leave that to other people, but um, the, the seas were seen as a problem for mankind. And here it's basically saying there's no more seas. So the earth is remade, and there's no need for a sea, so all the land of the earth is inhabitable. Will it be the same size as the earth we have today? Who, who knows? I certainly don't know. The Bible doesn't really say. It just says the earth will, will be remade. I'm assuming that God made it the first time how he wanted it. And so I'm assuming it will be basically the same size. It will just be able to be inhabited through the whole uh, circle of the earth. So move to verse 2. Then I, John, saw the, new ho- saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crime. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So when we come to this place and there is going to be the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be the holy city, New Jerusalem. (coughs) I believe, and some commentators believe, that this city appeared in the millennial kingdom, but, but now it's going to be a permanent fixture. And so we who are the bride of Christ, and the, the scriptures indicate that this city, and we'll read a little bit about the foundations upon the apostles, but the city is the dwelling place of the saints throughout 
eternity. And so we're going to dwell in the city. We're going to dwell in, I believe, the millennial kingdom as well. And so, but John is saying that he, he sees it. And look what he says. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You remember when we looked at Babylon and the destruction of Babylon, and Babylon was referred to as a city, as a, uh, as a, as a person. Uh, it, it was identified with evil, this personification of evil. And so this city is the personification of good and the blessing of God and it is, it is all, all the same thing. So when he says it's like a bride prepared for her, for her husband, it's talking about the, the height of beauty and goodness and, and grace and all, all these things that uh, you would expect when a bride prepared for her husband and it's all holy without the curse of sin, that it is going to be the very best that God does, which is incomprehensible. To, to us, um, I think John, instead of before he describes the physical structure that he sees, he he says this in verse four, in verse three, that the tabernacle of God is with men, mankind, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. When when God developed the nation of Israel, He brought them out of captivity. And he gave them the dimensions for the tabernacle. He gave them the dimensions. He gave them the qualifications about how they were to worship and all those things. And, and what God wanted them to know, he wanted the Jewish people to know that he would dwell with them. When the tabernacle was completed, they put the ark in. God's presence come upon it. And, and God's presence was with the nation of Israel and led them through their journey and then in the temple, when, the, when they came into the land and got established, his presence came into the temple that Solomon built, and, and his presence was with them. But it wasn't the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ yet, but it was, it was, it was Christ in the Spirit. You, you remember, I'm trying to think of which, I don't, I don't have the notes, but I'm trying to think of which uh, verse says that uh, in Corinthians, that the cloud that followed them was Christ. And they drank of the rock, which was Christ. And, and when it's talking about the cloud and the rock, it's talking about the presence of God. It's talking about Christ himself with them. And they just didn't see him in his human body because he had not yet been incarnate in a human body. But it was, it was Christ with them. God wanted to dwell with his people. God wanted them to know that he was... It, they could come into his presence and he would bless them and lead them and guide them and minister to them and, and, and forgive them. He, he wanted them to know that. He wanted them to have a, a, an awareness of his presence. So when we read this, that they shall be his people, God himself will be with them and be their God. That has a tremendous meaning that sometimes we, we don't grasp. We're going to dwell in the presence of God. We're going to dwell without the curse of sin in the presence of God. Um, and we're going to read a little description of what, what that's like as we go through. The first thing he describes, we read in verse 4. God's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear 
Um, why do we have tears? We have tears because of the curse of sin. We have tears because the curse of sin brings death. And, and so that death is not just when I die, but that death is that the curse of sin causes my relationships to be damaged. It causes my psyche to be damaged, if you like that word. It causes my... I, I remember when I started seminary that one English teacher said that everything you ever read is going to have one of three themes. It's going to be the theme about your relationship with yourself, your relationship with other people, and your relationship with God. And all of life comes under those three themes for us. And, and they're all damaged by sin. My relationship with myself is damaged by sin. With my spouse, it's damaged by sin. With the Lord, it's damaged by sin. But when we, so we have tears, and we, we have regrets, and we have remorse, and we have anger, and we have unforgiveness, and we have all those things. Or even, even when there is forgiveness, we still have a memory. I, I have memories that I, I remember with shame, and you probably do too. And, and even though I've asked for forgiveness from the Lord and from people, and the, the, I, I believe I'm forgiven, and I don't have, but, but you have shame when you think, how can I do that? And then the only reason about how could I do that is the answer is I'm a sinner. I, I'm a sinner. I sin because I'm a sinner. So that's why I could do that. And so one day those tears are going to be wiped away. Every tear. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. The former things have passed away. Today we have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is the, the down payment in our lives of what God is going to do one day. It's by the, His Spirit identifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the Holy Spirit within me tells me that the Word of God is true when it teaches me that Christ loved me, died for me, will forgive me, has forgiven me, not because I'm worthy, but because He is graceful. And it's to His glory that He forgave me. So the Holy Spirit teaches me that's true. And, and you know, so that's just a down payment. But one day I'm going to dwell in the presence of, of He who gave me the Spirit. I'm going to dwell in the presence of Christ. You're going to dwell in the presence of Christ. And all these, all these things that happen in our life because of the curse of sin, whether it's my sin that I did to myself or, or, or your sin that you did to me or their sin they did to us or, you know, however, all that is going to be gone. All that is going to be completely, completely gone when we dwell in the presence of the Lord. You know, when I think about this, when we're renewed in his presence, I, I don't know what all that means. I know we're going to have a new body. We're going to have a body like a Christ body. Christ's body after his resurrection was a physical body. I think we'll see Christ in a physical body throughout all of eternity. Um, I, I, don't, I, I think we will see him in his glorified body. Uh, that's described in the uh, first chapter, I believe it is, of Revelation, when we read that, and he, his Shekinah glory may come through, but we will know him as 
Jesus of Nazareth, who died on the cross, was resurrected, ascended into heaven to make intercession for us. We will know him as that person, human person, in his glorified body throughout eternity. So we will have a glorified body as well. You will know me as Jerry. I will know you by your name. I will. And you may be thinking, you know, when I first realized that, I was thinking, I just wanted a new body. You know, I wanted one like LeWayne. I wanted to be six foot tall. I, you know, but it's going to be okay. You know, when we get to heaven, it's going to be okay. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what we are today or what size we are. Or what, it's going to be, we're going to like it when, when we get to there. But I think this is the most important thing, that not only does he renew our body, I, I think that our memories are going to be washed and that's why there'll be no, uh, it, it doesn't mean we'll have no memories. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I think we'll remember. I will remember that I was a sinner, needed a Savior, Christ is my Savior. But, but here, here's what I think. I, I wrote it down so I don't, so I think that washing will leave us with no guilt, no regrets, no remorse. We will understand the purposes of God through the curse of sin. We will understand that the, the curse of sin that I experienced fulfilled the purpose of God for my life. I'll understand it then, which will leave no regrets, no remorse, no tears. I will remember it. And if we didn't remember we were sinners, we wouldn't remember we needed a Savior and give Christ glory for being our Savior. But, but all, all, the, all the hurt of that sinful practices in life and burden is going to be taken away from us, I believe, in this eternal state. No guilt, no regrets, no remorse. And then look at verse 5. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me in verse 6, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. I don't know about you, I have a, I have a thirst for things in life, don't you? You know, we, we, we think about thirst. First, we think about water or Diet Coke or whatever quenches your thirst. You know, we, we think about, I, 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 we, have, we have a thirst to be satisfied. It's a physical thirst, and it is satisfied by physical things. And then we, we have a thirst for more than that. We have a thirst to be known. We have a thirst to be appreciated. We have a thirst to be loved. We have a thirst to be accepted. I've got some grandkids who started back to school, and you have some, and maybe your kids started back to school, and we talked about how difficult it is to go to junior high, how difficult it is to go to high school, how, how difficult it is to go off to college, and, and maybe you remember those days, and maybe you remember it with your kids, and, you know, it's just difficult. It's, we want to be accepted. People come here as a new person visiting our church, and it's difficult. 
It doesn't matter what age you are, whether you're junior high or whether you're our age, it's just difficult because you want to be accepted. You want to be uh, affirmed. You want to be approved. Don't you have that thirst within you? And, and you know, and I come with that thirst, and you don't care. You're not thinking about me. You're thinking about yourself. You're thinking about your day and your, your, your problems and your, your life. And I'm not condemning you. That's, I just told you, I'm coming thinking about myself. And so we go through life never being satisfied with life. So, <laughs> I trade very carefully here. If you're married, you're never fully satisfied in your marriage. And I trade very carefully, you know, let's say, but if, <clears throat> if you're a part of a church, you're never, never fully satisfied with the church. If you're a part of an organization, you're never fully satisfied with your organization. If you have children, you're never fully satisfied with your children. If you have, and you know, you think, okay, I'm treading on dangerous ground. But you know, that's, just, that's why, why. Because our thirst for the fullness of life is always affected by the curse of sin. It's always affected by the curse of sin to some degree. And when we are walking in the Spirit, we can come very close to having those thirsts met. We can come very close to saying, Lord, I am your child. I am trusting you. I am, I am at peace in your presence. I'm at peace in my circumstances. I'm at, I'm at peace in my heart and my mind and in my soul. You read through the Psalms, and sometimes you saw David, and he was he was at that place, or, or Solomon, and you know whoever you're reading about. Sometimes they're at that place, but sometimes they're praying those in precatory prayers, where they're saying, "Lord, you know, I wish you'd take their children and beat their heads against the rock, and you know that they'd never have an offspring, you know." And so he he prays those in precatory prayers, and it's why it's because he sees and feels and experiences the curse of sin. I'm not saying his sin, I'm saying the world's sin. And, and, and we go through that, and you go through that, and I go through that. And, but one day, all of that's going to be taken away. When, when we thirst, Christ meets that thirst. We will be totally fulfilled, totally fulfilled. I thought about asking you how many of you ever overeat, but I thought that's probably not a good one. You know, we don't just eat until, until we have the calories that we require to live, do we? I like to eat. I eat because, I, you know, I like comfort food. You know, sometimes I, I read library books, and sometimes somebody is asking me, well, what are you reading? My brothers were here, and I had lunch with my brothers. We were talking about what we were reading. I told them, said, sometimes I just read comfort food books. And he said, what are comfort food books? I said, it's books I've already read before, and I just like the plot, and I just read them again. They're just comfort food. And, and I like to eat potato chips while I'm eating. You know, while I, you know it's just like, it's comfort. You know, it, but one day, we have, this, we, have a, we have a thirst for God. We have a thirst for fulfillment. We have a thirst for completeness. We want to be complete. And, and God's going to do that in heaven. God's going to do that in the eternal state. We're going to live complete in his, in his presence when we dwell there. 
Look at it again, if you would. Verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Freely. All, all your, your thirst will be satisfied. Your physical thirst will be satisfied that day. Your emotional thirst, your intellectual thirst, your spiritual thirst, your, your, your relationship thirst, your material thirst, your, 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 your thirst will be satisfied in that day. Totally, completely. Isn't that going to be wonderful? See, that's, he- that's, that's heaven, and it happens because we're in the presence of Christ. We're in the presence of him who loved us enough to die and to bring us into his family. He chose you. He adopted you. He, he, he's going to redeem you one day to himself, and we're going to dwell in his presence for, forever. When we read this, it's hard to grasp it. In verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Paul says in Romans, we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean I'm Christ. It doesn't mean that I, I it, it means that what he has, I have. I, he is, I, I am in Christ. He's in me, and one day that's going to take place physically, and, and, and the fulfillment and as he rules, I rule with him, you'll rule with him. We'll see that in a moment here in, in the eternal state. We've seen it in the millennial kingdom. But, but what, it, what is Christ's is ours. I mean, not in the sense that we are equal with Christ in any sense at all, but we share in his glory. We share in his bounty. We, we share in the creation. We, we grasp it. We understand it. We, we embrace it. It's fulfilling to us. And he did, it on, he did it for us. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. You're going to inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. You're going to be a child of God eternally, fully. In the present. Today, if you know Christ as Savior, you're a child of God. But we haven't realized our inheritance yet. We haven't come into our inheritance. We haven't been fully given all that we will be given in that day. And then we read in verse 8, part of the blessedness is the absence of sin, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now you wonder, why John put that in here? We've already passed that. And I think John is saying to us, and to the people who's reading this, I think he's saying to us, one of the reasons that we can experience this fullness of blessing and joy and our thirst be satisfied is because there is no evil. There is nothing against that. There there is no wickedness, no curse of sin that will ever affect our happiness, will ever affect our happiness again. And then he talks about the city. Verse 9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, 
having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay, so the city is identified with Israel. Uh, It's identified with the apostles of the Lamb. It's identified with the church. And we're going to say it's identified with the saints of all ages. So the city of God is for the saints of all ages. Uh, Not just the church, not just the church age, not just the Jewish believers, but saints uh, of all ages. Never fitted. He talked with me, had a goal, read to measure the city, its gates, its walls. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of man that is of an angel. And then he talks about the construction, and I'm going to skip over that. I, don't, I can't pronounce all those jewels. From verse 18 down to verse 21. And so when he speaks about all those jewels that adorn the city, and and he speaks about the magnificence of this city, it's really, really interesting when we read this and then the size of it. Those furlongs mean it's about 1,500 miles, that translates in miles, 1,500 miles square and high. 1,500 miles is if you drew a line from Houston to the Canadian border, and then you drew that line from Houston over to somewhere in Baja, California, and went up the west coast. So if you took all the western part of the United States, that's about a 1,500 miles square. If you multiply it out, it is 2,250,000 square miles. Maybe I better read that. (laughs) 2,250,000 square miles on one floor. Okay, on one floor. If you have 50-foot ceilings, do your math, how many many square square foot in a mile? How many many feet in a mile? Okay, so if you have 50-foot ceilings, you're going to have an average of about 10 floors per mile. Right? 1,500 miles, 15,000 floors with a 50-foot ceiling. What is this ceiling? 30? Probably. So 50-foot ceilings. So you have 15,000 floors of 2,250,000 square miles. There's a guy named Morris who did some arithmetic. I, I tried with my calculator. I have a little hand calculator. I tried with it. But it ends up and it does it to it, it does it to six point five E nine. And it means that's to the ninth degree or something, and I couldn't figure it out. So but <clears throat> I'm trying to tell you how many people that Morris said if there are twenty million people that have seventy five acres, and I guess that's one floor. I'm not sure. Either either you have a you have a hundred and fifteen hundred mile ceiling or that you're just on one floor. I'm not sure. So it's a big city. You say, well, 
how is that possible? You know, I don't know how it's possible for airplanes to get off the ground. Evidently, not many of them are getting off the ground these days. So, But, you know, God creates everything. He can do as he pleases, and, and he is pleased to do that on our behalf. And we're going to dwell in that city. And I think in dwelling in that city, then we're, we're going to go out of that city, we'll see in a moment, to rule and reign with Christ through this whole eternity, but we're going to dwell in that city in the presence of Christ, the very presence of Christ all the time. We're going to, ret- we're going to return home uh, as we go about our days and, and be glad to come home at the end of those days. His, you know, if you know something about jewelry and jewels and you read that description, John is trying his very best to, to describe the beauty and the glory of that city. And then we read this in verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So there's a temple in the Millennial Kingdom, and in the Millennial Kingdom, the temple is going to be used for thanksgiving offering, Not sin offerings, but thanksgiving offerings. But in this, there is no temple because Christ is there. Christ is there, and he is the temple. And, and he, he, he and God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And then we read this verse, The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine it, for the glory of God illuminates it. The Lamb is its light. I was thinking about that when I was reading it. I was thinking about when the sun comes up for us, what's happening is that the, the darkness of, of, of the earth obscures the sun. The sun's always there. It's always shining. The darkness of the earth where we are in position obscures the sun. And we read about Christ, especially if you go through John's, John's uh, uh, gospel, he, he's the light of the world. He, Christ said he's the, he's the light of the world. And he, he came to illuminate Man, well, that's spiritually speaking, but it's also true physically speaking. He, he is the light. There will be no darkness. There will be no night. So, so, so Christ himself, the glory of God. You remember when they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw his glory. And it was unveiled at that point in time. Revelation means the unveiling. So, the, so Christ is unveiled in his glory. And that glory brings the light of God. And, so, and there's no darkness, there's no, there's no night. I, I don't know how that happens physically. Is the new earth flattened out where Christ is there and illuminates the whole earth? I don't know. I think even with the spear, he can illuminate the whole earth at one time. He is God. He does as he pleases. But this is his promise. No night. I don't know about you, when, when I'm struggling in my life, the nights are the hardest times. You know, you, you can't, you know, in the nights is that sometimes you lose your hope in the night. You lose um, and, and you, you, you struggle with hope in the nights. But there'll be no nights there. No, no reason to, to sin at all. No temple in it and the glory of God illuminates it. And then we're reading verse 24, 25. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. The kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. The gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. 
and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall be no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So, <clears throat> so we're thinking about, okay, the nations. I, and we're thinking, okay, I thought that everybody in the eternal state is going to be saved. And I think that, I like what John MacArthur says about this. MacArthur says that this is talking about that the nations come and the kings come and we're there and the Old Testament saints are there, but all those people are saved. But he's, but he's saying there's no distinction between people. You you may have, you know, you may be a, you may be ruling as a king under the Lord's leadership and under His authority, but you're going to come in and out of the city like everybody else. There's there's no distinction. We are the children of God. Paul says that in Galatians. They're neither Jew nor Gentile, bond or free, rich nor poor, male nor female. We're the children of God, and they're coming in and out. The gates are not shut. There, there's no. There's no check on anybody, no identification. You come in and out and you worship and you dwell in the presence of God. And we bring our glory into that. Now, what is our glory? Our glory is our faith. We glorify God with our faith. We glorify God with our worship, with our heart attitude toward him. We glorify him. And then John, again, in the last verse says, because there's nothing negative there. There's nothing negative that would hinder that at, at all. Let me, let me close with this. C.S. Lewis had uh, screw tape tail wormwood. If you remember, if you're familiar with that. He, he had screw tape tail wormwood. He said, while many souls have been snared through pleasure, it is God's invention. And the powers of darkness have never have, have been incapable of producing even one such pleasure. So what they should do is encourage humans to take the pleasures God has produced at times and in ways or in degrees which are forbidden, which produces an ever-increasing craving for an ever-decreasing happiness. Okay, that's Satan's way. C.S. Lewis understood how Satan works, is that we have this ever-increasing craving for ever-decreasing happiness. But not when we go into the presence of God and dwell eternally. When there's a new heaven, a new earth, our, our, our souls are washed, our bodies are washed, our minds are washed, our spirits washed, and, and we dwell in the presence of God, and our thirst will be eternally satisfied. We will be, I will be happy to be Jerry. And you will be happy to be whoever you are, who God created you to be at the beginning. And we won't be better than anybody else. We won't be less than anyone else. We will be as the kings of the earth. We will be in the presence of God, His creation for His glory at our satisfaction. Don't you love that? That is a wonderful, wonderful promise. I'm going to pray with you, and then uh, Donna and Glenda, Glenda Williams' daughter, Jennifer, is here today, and uh, she's going to, I'm going to give her my microphone, and she's going to say thank you for praying for her. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you as we uh, bow before you this morning for the promises in your word. We thank you, Lord, that one day you're going to make all things new, 
including us and the world and all the systems of the world, all the injustices will be taken away, all the, all the memories of, uh, Lord, how mankind has done all we can to rebel against you and to dishonor you and all, all those things will be in the past and Lord the thirst that we feel today will be satisfied in that day that that's our hope and Lord we're, we're, we're like Abraham looking for a city whose builder and maker is God and, and Lord I thank you for giving us that thirst for this city that, Lord, we dwell in your presence, and that thirst one day will be satisfied, and we're grateful. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, Jennifer grew up in our church, and uh, now they live up in the Panhandle, and Jennifer's birthday is today. She's 50 years old. I just wanted to come before you and personally say, on behalf of my family, thank you for praying. I am a walking testimony to the power of prayer. And when I was first diagnosed with cancer, I was overcome with fear. What's going to happen? What kind of treatment am I going to have? I'm not scared anymore. Because when I was in fifth or sixth grade, in this very auditorium, we had a setup like Sesame Street. It was called Caraway Street. Before the new addition was built, I had a Sunday school class right up here. And when I was in fifth or sixth grade, I asked Jesus to come into my heart in this very room. And I don't have any fear about this cancer because it's not going to kill me. I'm going to beat it. And with your continued prayers, I will continue to get better. And my mom is fixing to cry. (laughs) But when I, I spent three weeks in the hospital, and they stuck a needle in my back to drain fluid from around my lungs. And all three lobes on my right lung collapsed. The bottom lobe is filled with scar tissue from radiation, so it will never inflate. My top lobe inflated fine. The middle one had an air leak. And my surgeon would not release me from the hospital until that air leak was sealed. And he came in March or May 15th, and he said, if that doesn't seal in the next couple of days, we will install what's called a flutter valve. And it would be a permanent valve on my side that would have a drain tube that it would drain fluid. And when it got full, I would have to go in and they would drain it. And he said, so if it doesn't, if that air leak doesn't seal in the next couple of days, that's what we're going to do. Leave it in for a couple of days. Make sure you don't have any complications. And then we'll send you home with that flutter valve. And I was like, okay. He left the room. I picked up the phone and called my mom. And she says, I'm on it. And she called the prayer chain. And the next morning, my doctor walked in with everything he needed 
to install that flutter valve. And I had, at that time, I had one drain tube, one chest tube left. And that was, it was going into what they call an atrium, where it collects 2,100 milliliters of fluid. I had gone through five. That was my fifth atrium. And I'm just nervous. Okay, okay. But Let, let's pray for you, okay? All right, I'm going to ask you to, if you would, with me, let's pray for Jennifer and uh, for her husband and for their, for their family. Our Father, we bow again before you, and collectively, uh, Lord, we ask you for grace. And, uh, Lord, we don't know your will. We don't know uh, what you have in store for us. We, we do know, as we study this morning, that eternally we're going to dwell in your presence. And, but, Lord, we dwell in your presence today. Uh, we're your children. We trust you. We honor you. Uh, we pray uh, for Jennifer and her husband. We pray for them, uh, for her physically, uh, spiritually, emotionally. Uh, Lord, we pray for grace to be extended. Might and everything that they go through is since your presence, since your love, and, Lord, your faithfulness to them as you've shown in the past and that you promised to show in the future. And we will be grateful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Lord bless you.